Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Joe Jackman. Joe is the author of The Reinventionist Mindset, Five Human Principles That Will Lead to Successful Business Transformation. He's also the founder of Jackman Reinvents, an agency and consultancy leading reinventions for many different companies. On the conversation today, we talk about reinvention, what it is, why people resist change, how can business leaders actually enact change and make it more acceptable and a positive thing for their businesses, and the downside of not changing, which is irrelevancy. We also talk a little bit about what's driving what. Are businesses becoming more irrelevant or are consumers changing their preferences? And you'll find an interesting answer to that question. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joe Jackman. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alan. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've been waiting for this conversation since like I think it's been like four years in the making, or maybe longer than that, when I saw you speak at a, a conference we were at in Chicago. So I'm, I'm glad we found each other. <laughs> I am as well. I, I enjoyed our, our uh, pre-chats uh, to get here and uh, look very much looking forward to the conversation. One of our conversations, you had quite the summer 
at the impressionable age of 10. <laughs> you have to describe a little bit about that summer experience. And then always curious to know, like, how formative was that for you? Well, to set the context for your listeners, not that long ago, I wrote and launched a book and, and it's about transformational change. And and along the way, my publisher said, yeah, why don't you tell the backstory of how you got interested in change and making it in the first place? And of course, I'm thinking, well, it's got to be a story that somewhere in my professional life, you know, as a young adult, I got excited about things, you know, all that. But when I thought about it, it really came from the summer you're referring to. So, so setting the stage, I'm this young kid. I've got older siblings, three of whom are at the University of Windsor. And this is a, a really interesting time. And it reminds me a little bit of a today in some ways. You know, it was in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, Nixon's a U.S. president. The Vietnam War is raging. My sisters are going at the University of Windsor which is across the Ambassador Bridge from Detroit and Detroit itself, like a, a lot of American cities and some Canadian cities were, were just really hotspots of social unrest and, and young people saying, look, we're not really loving the way the world's unfolding and we want to change. And, you know, what makes that so interesting was here I'm a kid from like a middle-class family. I'm the last of six kids. And, my mom and dad say, yeah, sure. If you want to go spend the summer with your sisters in this, you know, as it turns out, it was this like decrepit old mansion that they had rented with all their, you know, cool uh, friends uh, just off campus. And so I spent this summer living with them and my day was not going to the ballpark. <laughs> it was, okay, well, today we're going to go to the campus, uh, you know, the the library, and we're staging a sit-in. And then tonight we got to be at the, you know, the, the protest march. Um, and then tomorrow we've got that full day thing at the, the auto plant because there's a, a, a lockout. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be placard carrying. And, you know, I'm 10 years old. <laughs> and I've got this front row seat on this incredible, intense world that is so different than the relatively calm life that I'm used to. And I realized actually years later that it was that summer when I thought change is not only exciting and can be incredibly intense, but it requires a certain mindset, a certain way of thinking about it to actually make it happen and not be afraid of it. And you know, that was probably the best three months of my career when I think about myself as a, I made up the title reinventionist because I, I realized at some point that's really what I am. I'm, I'm built to help leadership teams make change and to get from where they are and to get past what's standing in their way to where they need to go and, and where they can go. And yeah, it goes all the way back to that crazy summer. And, and it's so funny because I went back at the end. I remember like being on a train back to, you know, my family's home and realizing, holy shit, <laughs> I, I don't even know how to explain this to my friends, let alone my mom and dad, who were, you know, everything was on the down low. Like, how's everything going, Joe? Well, 
you know, it's good. Yeah, we're having we're having fun, meeting lots of really neat people. I'm not telling them anything about, you know, the the police busting into the student union building and breaking up the, you know, the protest and and literally dragging people, uh, you know, off site. So that's that's the roots of the whole love affair that I've had with change and and then ever since then it's really just been trying to figure out how to do it well, how to master, you know, to get from what most people see as, you know, change is hard. It, it is only irrelevance is harder to, you know, not only just being comfortable with it, but embracing it, like, and then getting good at it, like being not just good, good, but like pro athlete good at it. That's what I'm all about. And that's why I wrote the book. Tell us a little bit more about like, uh, so we know your early story. How did you, how did you begin this career, this journey to become a reinventionist and, and how do you get to be an expert in reinvention? Well, as I say, I made up the title later later on because I was trying to reflect all the ones that were available to me. You know, I'm a consultant. Uh, I was a creative director for many years. I was a you know brand strategist, so-called brand strategist. Got really excited about how shaping strategy can guide all manner of creative development, and but all of it, if there was a through line through all the various chapters of my career. It was in situations where, look, we're kind of screwed if we stay where we're at. We've got to get on to, you know, the next gen of whatever it is, the value proposition or our customer experience. Most of the, the my career was consulting to leadership teams, um, hopefully being a good partner to them. And, you know, we don't have a lot of time usually was the, was the reality. And, you know, along the way, I was, you know, I had my own consultancy for a lot of years. I I went to industrial design school. I studied design, practiced in a lot of different realms, and and then eventually made my way to a creative director, started a company, really got excited about brand strategy and, and got onto that as a way to inform design. And then eventually, um, you know, had done that for a lot of years and had a, a successful company, which actually still exists today. And um, one of my clients said, look, I, I've, I've got you know, a really good, solid leadership team. We have to actually restructure this company. We've got to stand up some pretty important initiatives. And I don't have the senior most marketing leadership. So I, I would create a position, uh, the chief, first chief marketing officer position in this uh, management team. And it, uh, this is like a big client, like 20 plus billion dollar um, retailer. So I, I jumped into that and and I you know, went, as I think about it now, went to retail exec boot camp because I wasn't, I was a consultant my whole life. Um, but that was just an amazing two and a half years where I realized what it takes to actually change from the inside. Like it's easy to advise people, but when I had to live it and co-own not only the outcome, but also just the the day in and day out of changing organizational mindsets and and programming and and all of that in a very difficult time for that business, it just taught me so much. And when I came out of that, I, I realized, okay, what am I now? <laughs> and I thought, okay, the, the through line is I, I like change. I, I like to be a catalyst for it. I like to get people comfortable with it. You know, it's part strategic. It's very heavy with regard to insights. You know, it manifests in all manners of of ways, you know, all the way to advertising and customer experience evolution and all that stuff. But fundamentally, strategic change is a human exercise. That's what I learned. And that's what 
you know, I wrote the book, The Reinventionist Mindset, which tried to distill, you know, at that point, when I created the company that I run now, I, I've done probably 30 transformations of one kind or another, been involved in some way, progressively at a higher level as I went in my career. And I realized, you know, there is a way to think and do through massive change that is actually super helpful. And it kind of neutralizes some of the things that are standing in our way and gives bigger tailwinds and more energy and confidence to the things that can be allies to us as we think about making change of any kind. Congrats on the book. And just for those that are taking notes, listening to this, it'll be in the show notes, but it's the reinventionist mindset, five human principles that will lead to successful business transformation. So we've talked a lot about change, observing change, driving change on your way to becoming a reinventionist expert. Why do people resist it? I mean, it's just, it seems like it's just human nature, but I don't understand why. I'm curious how you think about it. Well, the, the culprit is human nature. Um, and when you, when you think about it, like I'll, I'll put it in very, very primal terms. Like we don't, if you go back, we don't hunt unless we're hungry. We, we don't, you know, we're, we're, we're quite content to, you know, on a needs basis, just stay put. Let's just sort of keep an eye and make sure that nothing is going to attack us. And then at the moment, okay, we better go out and uh, and catch something. We're going to do that as efficiently as possible. We're going to come back and then we're going to go back into status quo mode, which is sort of just keeping a watchful eye. The status quo is in today's context, if I put it in business terms, the equivalent of that just sort of staying put, staying safe, being watchful, but not taking unnecessary risk. And that's that is truly human nature. If there is no sort of tangible reward for me and I'm unsure of the outcome and risk seems too great, uh, over, overarching risk is, you know, greater than the potential reward that I can be very confident in. The net effect of all that is just stay put. Don't move. Wait until it's safe. And that has caused, you know, what I, the way I think about the status quo today, particularly in a, in a time when everything is changing so much faster, you know, business life cycles, business models, you know, even brand life cycles, everything's compressing. And so the status quo became this comfortable place that everything's going to work out if we just keep doing what we're doing to like, it's a serial killer and it's on the loose and it's coming for every slow moving or change resistant business on the planet because you cannot stay still any longer. Like things... You know, do, we're familiar with the term disruption. Why does disruption exist today? Whether it's technology enabled or it's just somebody saying, hey, why can't, you know, that shopping experience be this easier? Why can't the, the product be just that much better? Why does disruption exist? Well, it exists because the status quo is so pervasive. Lots of companies, very successful, you know, what they did to establish their position, take the share that they did. And they just basically went in to protect the status quo mode. And it left space for people to say, I don't buy that. I have to go into some dusty warehouse environment and sit on a bunch of mattresses to pick one and get sold, you know, this strange variation over this strange variation, none of which I can really grasp, but I know 
you know, it's going to cost me more. And then along comes Casper and says, you don't have to do it that way. There's an easier way. There's a, there's a more thoughtful way. And all those slow moving, no, this is the way it is. Let's protect the status quo. They just got caught flat footed. And so what I'm literally preaching, I mean, it sounds, it sounds a little bit over the top, but, but at least strongly advocating to my, you know, my community, the leadership teams I work with and anybody that will listen is look, the way to think about it is there is going to be a next better version of you. And if you think about it, wouldn't you rather be, be better if it's you? And, and I, I, you know, I personalize, I say, look, if anybody's going to be the next better version of me, <laughs> what I do, it damn well better be me. And, and so like my whole bias is towards, I don't actually want to remain in the status quo for a nanosecond longer than I have to. I want to lean forward, even though it's uncomfortable. That's one of the reasons, you know, uncertainty, fear of the unknown, Fear of losing face. I mean, you asked at the beginning what stands in our way. One of the things is, you know, a lot of CEOs, a lot of leadership teams are saying, look, I, I don't know if I want to take that risk. I run a long, successful company. You know, we've got a history of doing well, making money. Everything's not great, but at least, you know, we are confident on how it all works and we know what we're doing. And why would I take the risk? And so I say, look, do you want to be the one that wrote it out, kept on the status quo and smiling and confident, drove it off a cliff. Do you want to be that leader? Or, or do you want to be the leader that said, look, I want to protect the future of this company and I'm okay to take a couple of hits on things that may or may not work here or there, but I'm going to be part of the team and part of the history of the business that gave it its next act. And it's a pretty simple choice. It's just hard to make when you're, you know, quietly reflecting on your own risk, comfort, and, and tolerance, and um, that you know, that's a, you just have to think about it. I, I actually, I'm on a mission to reposition change in people's minds. I like how you th think about it. The next better version of you or your company. It does make me wonder. You know, do, do does there have to be some level of existing pain to create even the conversation? in the doing of it with leadership teams, I'll work with them to write the case for change. And the case for change doesn't always have to be a negative thing. Like that whole concept of burning platform can be very helpful. You say, look, yes, we like doing things the way we do them, but you know they haven't been going as well, or there's other competitors that are as good as that or better than we are now, or there's disruption and it's changing the game or consumer expectations are shifting. There can be lots of reasons on the kind of negative side of the balance sheet as to why we need to change. But there can also be a lot on the positive side. Like, you know, in a way I'm, I'm writing the case for change with leadership teams while I'm writing the case for confidence. Look, look at, look at who we are. Look at our market position. Look at our reach. Look at the customer engagement we have. Look at the wherewithal we have, you know, and that might be our assets. Maybe some of them are tired. Maybe some of them need to be, you know, refreshed or actually just thrown overboard and replaced with new ones. But our starting point is so much more advantaged. So what can we get excited about? Well, we can get excited about, look, the world's on the move. The consumer is looking for new answers, new ways of buying, new, new solutions, new you know, whether it's apparel or food or, you know, styles, flavors, experiences, why aren't we thinking about 
us being part of that. That's a case for change. That's we want to continually being the part of the future. Trouble is that leadership teams often associate the future. Oh yeah, we have to rewrite our business model. We've got to make some giant leap. And and what I will also counsel is to say, look, the future isn't some far off place. It's not like, you know, to infinity and beyond. And one day we're going to be having tea on the on the the planet Mars. It arrives daily and we can either participate in it or we choose not to and sideline. And so let's just jump in and start to create the future now. It's one of the principles in the book. And what we'll find is it's never a big decision. It's never a moment of, okay, now is the moment we got to make this great big bet. It becomes more fluid than that. You know, you're just part of creating the future now and and your business will become very good at it and naturally evolve. And uh, it, it, the scariness goes away. That's how I think leadership teams need to think about change and placing series of small bets that eventually start to add up with big bets that you make confidently. You run across the common mistakes that they're making, or I mean, maybe one of them that you just described is thinking that it's a far off destination or that it is a big bet when it really isn't. It's here and now and it's small and manageable <laughs> at the moment. But I'm curious if there's any other you know, mistakes or, or things that people make or, or hurdles they have, just have to get over. There's probably two that come to mind. The first is what business values is reliability, predictability. And that's generally what gets rewarded, for example, in stock markets. And, you know, you can see the path, you see the trajectory, there's, there's confidence, this team, this company knows what it's doing and it's paying. And change is the opposite of that. It's, it's a set of variables. It's, it's possibilities that need to be proven and disproven. And that's why breaking it down into smaller pieces and, and smaller bets is really one of the ways um, to get at it. But, but on a very human level, it just means embracing uncertainty. Let's just get comfortable with uncertainty. That's, that's the way you can actually create the future now is just do that. But one of the other, call it traps that people fall into in these situations is they'll start to do the math on change. Like, for example, if I'm a manufacturer of bottled water and I've got a lot of capital tied up in plants that produce plastic bottles and fill them and label them, and along comes, you know, this massive shift, which is taking place right now, and plastic bottles are not the future. They will be uh, a relic of the past in the foreseeable two, three, five years at the outside, at the outside, and and so imagine you're a leadership team that says, yikes, like, okay, do the math on us replacing all of that infrastructure and, and writing off all of those machines and getting onto maybe it's Tetra Pak or, you know, glass, whatever it is. And you pretty quickly get to this wall that can't be climbed because you say, well, it's just ineconomic for us to make this kind of change. If you're a retailer and you say, I used to have 2,000 stores across the country that were all very productive. And now, you know, 30% of my volume doesn't go through those stores anymore. It goes online and direct delivery, which, by the way, very few retailers make money doing. And suddenly it all starts to unwind. And you say, well, if I close those stores, the one thing I could rely on making money with was stores. How do I replace it? Well, I'm going to replace it with something that's unknown and now do the math on what it's going to take to do that. 
And suddenly the risk looks too great. And I say to business leaders, look, as business people, we're very, very good at assessing the risk of any, any significant change and doing the math. We are not very good at assessing the risk of not changing. And we have to be very good at that. Because the thesis in any exercise, any financial modeling exercise, is that the status quo will be true going forward. What if it isn't? Yes, it would be great if we could just contain the change to a, a few incremental tweaks here and there. But in, in fact, all of that is under siege and is going to go away. you got to replace it with something. Now, how do you feel about change? Well, suddenly it's necessary. I need to leave my cave, the safe spot, and I need to go chase something. Okay, well, great. Let's, let's channel that energy and let's talk about you know, what we're going to chase and how we're going to win it and then how we're going to scale it. And how are we going to migrate from what we were to what we are going to become in a really thoughtful way so nobody has to get freaked out so our sales aren't going to tank for eight consecutive quarters and then we'll start to climb back out of it. There is a way to do this that none of that has to happen. That concept, I mean, the the notion of doing the math of change and it just snowballs into this massive thing. I mean, if you are the if you are changing as you go, I would imagine it creates options where those scary math numbers aren't as scary anymore, right? Like if you're first to change or in the first pack to change, you could sell your assets to other people that still need them as one practical example. But what do you have to do to be good at leading change today? Like the audience that's listening to this is marketers and marketing executives and other business leaders. And just curious, like, what do you have to have in you <laughs> to, uh, to do this well? There's a few things that really stand out for me, not be beholden to the past, which is easy to say, but the past has a way of, of keeping us in check. You know, it's, it's where our success stories live. It's where, you know, the proven model or the, you know, the, the way of building, you know, a, a campaign and executing it, like all these things live in historical context. And they, the thing you have to be careful of is, you know, the past is, um, is very, very powerful. It, it's a reinforcement of the status quo. And if, if you let it, it will actually hold you back from your future. So I, I think of it as, as being in this, this perfect balance between what's behind me is truly behind me. I'm looking forward. I will always try to take lessons from the past, but I will never let uh, any of that hold me back from, from thinking of it in fresh and contextual ways for what's happening now, not then, but now. Marketers are my favorite people um, because I think they have such a pivotal role to play. They don't always either get to play it or they don't take the seat at the table. And I think that, you know, the, the question I get asked a lot is, you know, because I've been a CMO for a, a stint, I've, I've not made a career out of being a professional marketing leader, but I, I did do two and a half years in a very big company and learned it the hard way. And then I was an interim CMO in some of the transformations, the earlier ones that I was involved in for numbers of years. And, and what I realized was that marketing, when it's relegated to comms, obviously comms is a hugely important part of, of all of this, 
but it misses the true point of the connectivity between a business a business evolution intersecting with brand and 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 the full meaning of brand you know why do we exist what are we here to do who are we to customers really beyond the functional and also the levers you know many many levers and dials to bring people along and and engage with them like the, the marketer is uniquely positioned to be a great ally on Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous 2-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On the business side, because, you know, they should co-own P&Ls, and most of them do. They are also very, very central to the narrative of why a business exists and, and what its brand's all about. And unfortunately, though, in that realm, they're always, or often, they're, yeah, you, you can be, you can play that role, but push it out to the market, you know, as opposed to help make it live within the four walls of a business, within our culture. That's a real miss if that's not happening. And then that last piece is, I think, more of the, you know, normal, good, technically solid, financially disciplined practitioners of all the marketing, communication and engagement means that exist today. And I'm a little longer in the two, so I could only dream of when I was doing some of the the marketing work years ago, the toolkit that marketers have today is just like, I couldn't even imagine it back then. Like seriously, imagine being able to engage with customers in the way that we can today that doesn't require massive amounts of uh, media dollars. It's a panacea. It's just like, oh my gosh, this is a buffet of things we can do. And, and you know, a lot of it is, if not free, it's pretty darn close. It's, you know, high leverage, low cost tactics that can really count. And, um, and that's in, you know, in addition to all the other tactics that may or may not be relevant today. But so I think that the, the marketer, the marketer's role today is bigger if you see it and you lean into it. I was just curious if there's companies that come to mind when you think about embracing change or, or leaders you're talking to that you feel like are embodying this. You know, my favorite go-to, and, and if he's if he's amongst your audience, um, you know, it, it, he'll uh, hopefully smile. But Chris Brandt, I chatted with not that long ago, um, the CMO of Chipotle, and 
You know, I, I really like Chris because he came out of the financial world uh, originally, and and so he brought with it a, just a good, solid, you know, business grounding, a discipline around. Hey, we're we're trying to create value here. We're trying to, you know, do this in a way that is is thoughtful, productive financially. But he's he's somebody who gets brand in the big sense. Like, why do we exist? What are we trying to accomplish? Why are we here on this planet? And five years ago, even that kind of stuff felt like window dressing. You know, it was part of like corporate social responsibility. Like, hey, we, we do these things and they're meaningful, you know, socially or to our communities or what have you. Not to discount them because, you know, I think a lot of companies have done very valuable things for the communities they serve and are connected to. But today it counts more to bring that into the center of things and actually make business decisions, not only in a marketing sense, but in other ways, sourcing how you, you know, go about treating your employees and um, how you compensate them and the conditions that you create for them culturally to have a healthy work environment. All of that should be grounded in and guided by a, a sense of brand. And uh, Chris strikes me as somebody who who very much gets that, um, in addition to being just a very competent, accomplished marketer. I'm reflecting, I mean, picking up on threads throughout the conversation we've been having, and I'll get to a question, I promise, but one of them is like just your multidisciplinary background, right? Starting in industrial design, creative director, brand strategist, consultant flip to the business side, you know, inside the client organization running things. And then your the notion of Chris as your example, having come from a financial background, you know, now head of marketing, I'm seeing a pattern here of like just interconnected multidisciplinary like mindsets. I'm curious if you've ever picked up on that because I imagine these reinventions I wish you were always working with the CMO, but my guess is you're most likely working with the C-suite and, and at some direction of the CEO in many cases because of the type of change that you're trying to drive. And I'm wondering if you just, that multidisciplinary approach, your industrial design background, do you feel like that plays a role? Is that a special secret ingredient? It's funny, I gravitate towards people that aren't beholden to their lane. <laughs> right. And so my own career path, you know, is, is a, um, I, I was actually just um, incredibly honored. The American Marketing Association, just, this is going to sound like really self-serving, but they just, uh, I just had this induction ceremony. They inducted me into the Hall of Legends. And, uh, and yeah, it was like really, and, and it's funny when they, they were interviewing me in this amazing digital experience, they, they said, you know, what does this mean to you? And I said, well, first of all, I want to say I'm kind of an imposter. <laughs> like I don't really deserve this. <laughs> and, and let me tell you why, because like I respect the craft of marketing and there are people that, you know, they went to school to do it and they had their entire careers, you know, in, in various roles and they are just really, really good. That's who in my mind should be in that hall of legends. I came at it differently. I, I just, I just got onto something that fascinated me. I thought, oh, that's important. You know, this whole thing is strategy, which really shapes creative. Like, how, what do I need to know there? And I kept sort of leaping forward in some kind of naive way because really, like, I had no business being a CMO of a publicly traded company. 
when I, when I took that role, I like it was sort of like shock. Like Joe did what? And why would law? This was Loblaw Companies um, up in Canada, this big giant retail. But coming back to your question, you know, I I, I think there is something about having traveled a, a non-linear path that gives people advantage in the way they they see the world and. And maybe their toolkit gets a little wider. Like I, I was talking with um, Nick Kukranis, uh, who is, um, I don't know if you know that name. Nick, Nick's an amazing entrepreneur um, and he's the co-founder of Alinea, right? Celebrated one of, one of the few um, multiple Michelin star holders in America with his venues, um, with his partner. And um, well, guess what? Nick, Nick was a derivatives trader. Like I said, how, how the heck did you get to, you know, and he created talk. He just sold it. Yeah. He just sold it for $400 million. In fact, two days after I chatted with him, I was wondering why he was smiling. We were on a video conference. <laughs> now I know, but there is something very valuable about whether or not you actually had the opportunity to work in business transformation or, you know, furthering a brand or building a business or being an entrepreneur where you can bring different experiences into it. That's, I think, advantageous. But even if you don't, like the first principle in the Reinvention of Mindset, the book is seek insight everywhere. It sounds so basic, but tune into things that are beyond your remit, beyond your industry, beyond your category. Pay attention. Like I, I, I often, one of the reasons I love the medium is you, know, you can set the parameters and you can get your daily feed of, because it gives me articles that I would never otherwise read. Like I just read this great article in Psychology Today or one of, one of the, a psychology trade magazine and open up the aperture and don't be beholden or, or, or stuck in that sense of, oh, this is the way it's going to be done. That, you know, I've done this a hundred times or people in my profession know, that's one of my, you know, my issues. I, I sort of have a love hate with, the agency world, the same thing with the management consulting world. You know, I admire their tools. I admire their disciplines. But I want to say, like, because the weapon is a hammer, not everything is a nail. You know, like, just put the hammer down and pick up something else and 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 go at it that way. And then maybe pick up something else and go at it that way. And let's see what what materializes. I think that's, that's the future to me, you know. And that's creative. Uh, like... It's funny, I used to downplay the creative side because I wanted so badly to be a strategist. I wanted to so badly be somebody who added value to, you know, to business leaders and help them figure out like complex problems with big financial outcomes attached. And so I would, yeah, sure, I came from the creative world, but I become something else. And now I realize I'm just doing business, you know, strategy or insight work or, you know, organizational alignment with a creative spirit and lens. And I think that's what, you know, I, I'm biased, of course, but the world needs more of that, I think. I agree. I have a little bit of a twist here. We've been talking about change and how to drive it and what to look for, you know, all the elements of it. I have a question about where's this change coming from? Are the consumers driving the change or is it companies driving their own irrelevance? It's both. A lot of my career, particularly the early part of my career, was in um, retail, and I've read a lot and and been around 
uh, enough retailers and studied the history of various you know ways of doing things. And go, if you go all the way back, there's been this dance going on between those who sell things uh, and provide and those who buy and consume. And it's hard often to understand what's driving what. But I think the truth is that sometimes it's retailers who, just to stay in, in that realm for a minute, that said, look, there's a way that we can lower the price. And we know that consumers would love to be able to afford more or buy better quality for lower prices. And maybe if we take costs out of our system and get more efficient, like Walmart, or you know, maybe if we had like a different kind of relationship, like a financial model that fundamentally is different, like maybe your members and therefore, you know, you give us a little bit of money and there's Costco. And so that was tuning into what consumers generally were looking for. And some of them were really looking for that and evolving towards it. And, and in the end, retailers taught consumers broadly over generations to be like so good at value. And then along comes technology that puts the tools in their hands so they can do comparative. Where is true value? Like, you know, they're value heat-seeking missiles now, the consumers. And retailers taught them to be that, uh, and technology enabled them. But I would say, on the other hand, consumers, and this would be bringing it right to the present day, consumers themselves are on the move, as they always are. What's driving them today? Values. We are seeing more and more evidence, and particularly in the context of the pandemic, and, and data is proving this out, as well as case examples we can point to. The consumer wants to buy uh, not just with their wallet, but with their, their values. We're actually seeing, in my view, the emergence of the values economy from the you know, longstanding value economy, quality over price. That'll always be important. But I, for example, I'll give voice to this this trend. I don't want to buy from companies that don't reflect my values. I want to know that they are good people and that there is a reason that they exist that goes beyond only profit. I don't have any issue with companies that I buy from making profit. You know, in lots of cases, I'm a shareholder. You know, if you think about broadly held, publicly traded, you know, et cetera. But there needs to be some reason that I'm going to care about you and have a relationship with you that goes beyond what you do functionally for me. Because functionally, you're interchangeable. I can get what you do. And there's exceptions, you know, technical innovation, you know, one brand has an advantage over another, or, you know, this brand figured out how to make it easier and, and you know, fewer steps. Great. They've got an advantage. But most things like that will get duplicated at some point. So what is the tiebreaker? Well, the tiebreaker is who are you and how do I feel about you? And that used to count like in a very small subset of consumers, the enlightened few. And today that's becoming the majority. When the penalty is, look, if everything's equal, but I think that you don't line up with my values, I'm going to deselect you from the consideration set. And so there is an example of humans realizing on a, you know, a planet with finite resources, with a lot of social stuff that we have to sort out um, because it's causing us not only pain, but it's scaring the, the heck out of us. We need to make everything we do count towards something better. And that shift, I can see it. I saw it coming in data 
you know, some years back, and I can just see it reaching its zenith and accelerating. And pretty soon, you won't find companies that aren't really tight on that. And they operate with that at the center of what they actually do. You know, this you know, triple bottom line or not only for profit, that's the future. I want to switch gears a little bit and get to know you a little bit more, although I feel like we've been doing that as we went. And one of my favorite questions to ask, we may have already stumbled on the answer at the beginning of this conversation, is uh, was there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? I think that that formative story I told you is is part of it. I, you know, I was always going, oh, look at what they're doing. Wow, that's cool. I wish I could do that. I wish I could... I wish I could talk like that. I wish I could, you know, be that confident. I wish I could do those fun things. I wish I had that freedom to make up my mind what I liked and what I didn't like. And and you're sort of always in the slipstream of, you know, these really, you know, really, in my case, I was blessed with, you know, four sisters and a brother who, you know, were just crazy in their own ways. Like they just got onto things. They were obsessive about whatever they were into at the time. And whether that was politics or, you know, music and the arts or whatever, the law, you know, I have a sister who's, she's got the highest recognition in Canada, the order of Canada for her work in human rights. And, and I just got so inspired as a kid, like, wow. So I would say that collective experience just got me to want to do more and learn more and keep growing and, and never get stuck. And then fortunately, this very intellectually curious family that I grew up with, they sort of reinforce like, whatever you want, just go get it. Like, just keep the aperture open. If something catches your attention, pursue it, run it down, find out if it's for you. If not, let it go and and go on to the next thing. So I'd, I'd say that's probably the answer. That's awesome. If you were starting this journey all over again, what what advice would you give your younger self? Well, I would have invested in many, many things <laughs> years ago. <laughs> Cannabis would have been one of them. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> to go from, you know, uh, an occasional user to, uh, you know, this this is coming and it's going to be, you know, incredibly uh, powerful from a value creation point of view. But that's hindsight, right? I would say maybe to to take stock of of where you're at, like, I think in order for people to keep going and they need to be bold and boldness takes a certain degree of ego. And and it's funny, ego is sort of in our current environment seen as something that's really a bad thing, but, but ego is essential to making change. Like you have to, you have to believe that you can be part of doing stuff and, and kind of have the confidence. And, and it, it's certain, if I look back at my career and my life, I, I'd say certain, I was taught to be like, as humble as possible. I'm not always disciplined in that way. Like I, you know, I, I can buy my own hype just like everybody else, but humility is, I think something that's super important, but, but not to confuse humility with confidence and zeal and being bold and saying, yeah, I can do this. And I think in a couple instances, I sort of let that one thing override the other. And maybe I could have gotten a little further, you know, at this moment or that, but but in the end, Alan, what I can tell you is like at this age and stage, like only one road leads here and I'm happy with here. Oh, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And to your point, only one road leads to where you are today, which is, uh, which is 
It's, it's very true. A couple of final questions for you. This next one is really silly, but I love asking it. It's uh, wondering if there's been an impactful purchase for yourself of $100 or less in the last year. Yes. Thank you for, by the way, giving me a heads up on this one. Because <laughs> if you would ask me that question cold, I would be like, oh, shit. Because <laughs> the under $100 part you know, was the real, that's the twist. Okay, so let me tell you what it is. I bought an iPhone charger that has a 15-foot cord. <laughs> and it's changed my life. Yeah, like how many times, like this back, back in the day, pre-pandemic, when I don't know about you, if you were on planes as often as I was, how many times did you sort of like try to get that email out <laughs> to your client while getting the charge, you're leaning over somebody, you know, or, or crunched down or sitting on an airport floor because there's the, that 15 feet doesn't <laughs> charge as fast, but that is freedom. Yeah. <laughs> Like, yes, I'm not. My posture has improved. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know exactly the the awkward uh, gymnastics in the airport to be able to keep a conversation going as you desperately hunting for that plug, and the plug is all the way down at the floor. And now you either have to make the decision: do I sit on the floor or do I like bend over and look like an idiot? But yeah, I know exactly what you mean. My son Niall is 15 years old and and we were getting ready for dinner and I, I sort of come around the corner of the kitchen and, and he's sitting on the kitchen floor, you know, on on his um, iPhone and he's playing some game. And I said, what are you, what, like, go sit on a couch. It's very comfy over there. He goes, oh no, I, you know, it's, this is the this is the best um, spot to charge. So I just thought, and I, and I thought that's just crazy. <laughs> So 15 feet means you sit comfortably while you charge and do whatever you want to do. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's a great suggestion. Uh, two last questions. Uh, curious if there's brands or companies or causes that you're following or you think other people should take notice of? Yeah, well, here's here's one, and, and it is a very hot topic. I am really impressed and and inspired by companies that are stepping in in a way that we seldom have seen in the past to the social discourse going on today, uh, not only in America and North America, but around the world and saying it is our job as executives of companies, as, as stewards of brands, whether they be Jamie Dimon in the financial realm or, or, you know, the, the folks in major league baseball standing up and saying, no, we're going to move the, the all-star game out of, out of Georgia, because we don't sign up for, you know, what's happening with voter rights. That used to be like, how many conferences had you gone to in the marketing branding realm where somebody would mention, Oh yeah, here's some um, Patagonia and, and here's Ben and Jerry's and, and, you know, the, the sort of e easy to trot out, but, but look today, there are businesses entirely formed. I was, I was chatting with um, Jen Freeman from Zambezi Agency not that long ago, and she said she notices a difference between the companies formed in the last five years and the companies that are you know older legacy businesses because values and, and purpose are right at the heart of who they are and what they do and, in fact, why they started the business. And yet big companies, medium-sized companies and small companies, disruptors, new age, tech, whatever – we all have an obligation to speak our minds. And the and the question you would ask is why? Isn't that risk? Like, why would I take a risk of disenfranchising 
some stakeholders or a good chunk of my customers because I take a position outside of my business realm on things that are political in nature or social in nature. Why? Because you have an obligation to your employees and to your and to your culture as a whole. Like when Walmart said, you know, this was a couple of years back um, when Walmart said, look, we got to stop selling handguns. We've got to stop um, allowing uh, carry in our stores. Do you think that the overlap with Walmart and its customers that, you know, lots of hunters, lots of sports, um, you know, uh, enthusiasts, gun enthusiasts, and, and then just generally those who buy guns for protection and, and all that, do you think they took a risk? Well, they sure as heck did. But what they said was, look, there's a higher order set of values here that we can't, we're not uh, separate from. We have to, we have to embrace what we believe in and we have to give voice to that. And I think that's what I'm tuned into these days. And so there's, there's a whole host of companies that I admire. I named a few, but anyone who actually speaks their mind and takes that risk, you know, Phil Knight, if you read his book a long time ago said, look, I'm going to be true to what I believe in, even if it, uh, disenfranchises some of my customers. The bet I'm going to make is by being true to me and my values and my vision, I'm going to please and and build a deeper relationship with more customers than I piss off and disenfranchise. And, and I think that's how you have to think about it because when you get there, you're actually truly creating something that is that is evergreen, that will exist because people will be with you as you continually evolve, evolve and you're not going to get it right all the time, but you just have to act your values. And um, so that's what I'm, I'm paying attention to these days and really excited about action. Last question for you. What do you feel like is either the largest opportunity or threat to marketers today? Well, the threat is you become sort of, you know, the turnstile practitioner of marketing tactics, which often talked about probably on your program as well. That's really the threat I see when when the opportunity, as I said earlier, is to take the seat at the table and be so much more. You're right at the intersection of the stuff that counts today, in addition to just being good at your job functionally. The opportunity is um, really understand community and understand that, you know, it is not pushing content. It's not only loyalty programs and so on. Community is actually just creating places and spaces where those with like-minded beliefs and pursuits can gather and you can participate. And through that, you'll actually learn a lot. You'll truly give your brand over to people, which I think is the, the next act of marketing and brand stewardship is to say, you know, really, truly, it's not our brand. It's, it's owned by our community. And how do we participate with them, not just sell to them? I always say, be more, mean more. And the end result is you'll sell more because you count, because you matter. And community is is the next territory to really figure out. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. 
I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 